The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to FinancialSenseWealth.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Welcome, everyone. Just want to give a quick update of an exciting new change. Financial Sense Wealth Management has just launched a new website, FinancialSenseWealth.com. We'd like to encourage all of you to check it out and tell us what you think. As always, all of our Financial Sense NewsHour podcasts, as well as our premium FS Insider material, videos, and research are still located on our FinancialSense.com website. And for today, we've got a great show with Ari Wald from Oppenheimer, followed by macro strategist Greg Weldon. And they're going to dive into the economic and market outlook, given a lot of the current uncertainties. So you definitely want to hear what they have to say. So we hope you enjoyed our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Well, some sad news to end this week. Wall Street has lost an icon in the financial world with the passing of Byron Wayne, vice chairman of private wealth at the Blackstone Group. Byron passed away on Thursday at the age of 90. His commentary and his annual 10 surprises have been a fixture on Wall Street for the last 38 years. If you listen to our annual forecast at the beginning of the year, we always featured his surprise forecast for their thought-provoking ideas. Byron will be sorely missed. It was another losing week for investors this week as fears over another Middle East war widening and plus rising long-term bond yields weighed on the markets. Several of the magnificent seven stocks, which have held up the S&P, are starting to break down, most notably Alphabet, Apple, and Tesla. Amazon broke its downtrend on Friday, reporting record sales in the third quarter. But more worrisome is the breakdown of the auto and the banking stocks with Bank of America and Wells Fargo breaking down to new lows as big banks suffer massive losses in their bond portfolios and their commercial real estate loans. Individual investors are also feeling the pinch in their bond portfolios as 2023 represents the second year of double-digit losses for bonds. Hi everyone, I'm Jim Poplavin. Welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Up on deck, Ari Wald will join me from Oppenheimer. Ari's more positive on the outlook for stocks favoring large cap versus small cap, growth versus value, and the U.S. markets versus foreign markets. Greg Weldon will also be here as we discuss the return of inflation, which has been impacting stock prices and bonds, and the outlook for commodities. But before we do, let's find out the big stories moving this week's markets with Ryan Poplava. It was a big week on Wall Street for earnings reports with several bellwether names in the tech and communication sectors announcing this week. There were big moves in stocks and bonds and several economic reports as well. A big driver has been technical selling of stocks with the S&P 500 closing below its 200-day moving average on Monday, followed by the intraday low of the S&P 500 on Thursday at 41.27 that qualified as a 10% pullback from the July 31st closing level. The issue is that the bulls just haven't been able to regain control, even despite a few attempts to turn positive throughout the week on intraday rallies. To kick off things on Monday, Bill Ackman said he had covered his short in bonds, stating there is too much risk in the world to remain short bonds at current long-term rates. Bill Ackman is a famed hedge fund manager. The 10-year treasury yield fell 
from 4.97 to 4.84% following his comments. The Treasury yield shot back up on Wednesday, however, to 4.95% after the September new home sales report showed the strongest annual rate of sales at 759000 since February 2022. In addition to a sizable sale of five-year notes that met underwhelming demand for the $52 billion lot. The reaction, however, was overturned Thursday after strong demand for a $38 billion sale in seven-year Treasury notes auctioned that led to a drop again in rates to 4.85%, where the yield stayed through the end of Friday's trading. As I mentioned, stocks were being whipped around by volatility this week, earnings, and other geopolitical news. All week, investors were anticipating an escalation to the Israel-Hamas conflict after Israel forces began executing raids ahead of a possible ground invasion. On Friday, there was a negative bias to stocks despite earnings reports based on news the U.S. had carried out airstrikes against Iranian-backed targets in Syria, again suggesting possible escalations to the conflict that worried investors. On the economic front, most of the data suggests conditions are resilient and will not encourage the Fed to lower rates anytime soon. The September new home sales report was strong on Wednesday, leading to a rise in long-term rates. Thursday, unemployment claims rose to 210,000, still a far cry from recession levels. The September durable orders grew 4.7%, showing business spending continues to increase. The advanced third quarter GDP report showed the economy grew a stellar 4.9%, and it so far was close enough to the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now forecast, which was 5.4%. Advanced retail sales for September showed 0.9% growth, and September's pending home sales grew 1.1%. Friday, we got key consumer data that reinforces resilience, but also won't support a rate cut from the Fed. Personal income rose 0.3% in September, and the PCE price index and the core PCE price index, that's the Fed's favored inflation indicator, shows that things are still sticky with prices up 0.4% and 0.3% for the core number, respectively. Finally, the October University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Report rose slightly to 63.8 from 63, but inside the report showed weakening sentiment among higher income consumers and those with large stock holdings. Business conditions weakened and year-ahead inflation jumped up. Earnings were lively this week with winners and losers, which is typically what we see each season, uh, but Chevron fell after announcing a stock acquisition of Hess Corp and the sector was hit hard on Friday on results from the company and ExxonMobil, which saw the sector drop 2.3% on the day. Big name stocks, General Dynamics, Waste Management, and Texas Instruments saw gains Tuesday following their reports while Boeing fell. The same day, Alphabet hit a misspelling falling 9.6% on disappointing growth for its cloud business, while Microsoft and Amazon saw better demand for their cloud services and saw gains post their earnings announcements this week. IBM was another tech standout, while Meta fell 3.7% Thursday with its disappointing guidance. Intel beat estimates and issued above consensus guidance, combined with Amazon's results, helped lift the NASDAQ at the open before giving up on most of the gains to settle, only up 0.38% Friday. Because of many earnings announcements this week, the blended combination of actual results and estimates are showing earnings growth for the third quarter, for the first time we've seen this earnings season. As of this week, according to FactSet, with growth of 
This is a huge improvement from last week's earnings decline of negative 0.3% caused by some healthcare companies. FactSet is reporting that 49% of the S&P 500 companies have reported actual results to date, and 78% have reported above earnings estimates, which is above the five-year and 10-year averages. That wraps up this week with a big call from Ackman to close his bond short, earnings that have recovered from two quarters of contraction, possibly, as we hit the halfway mark to the earnings season, continued concerns over geopolitical risks and economic results that aren't showing recession signs, but investors may be looking further ahead. Up next, this week's guest technician, Ari Wald. Anna Wong is the chief U.S. economist at Bloomberg LP. Before that, she worked for the Federal Reserve Board, served on the White House Council of Economic Advisors and the U.S. Treasury. So, Anna, I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today because obviously yesterday we got this blowout Q3 GDP number came in at 4.9%, which ironically enough, that means that U.S. and China actually grew at the exact same rate in the third quarter. Their third quarter GDP was also 4.9%. I don't think we've seen U.S. and China growing at the same rate for many, many years. I can't even think back how far that would have been. But in any case, the 4.9% Q3 number is twice, over twice what we saw in the second quarter. So, you know, some people were calling for a reacceleration in the U.S. economy, a no landing scenario. And it does appear at least that we saw that from second quarter into third quarter. What say you about this stronger than expected GDP number that came through? We had um, expected a very strong third quarter since August already. And and the reason why is because over the summer, there was a wave of animal spirits kind of driven consumption, uh, mostly in services and entertainment and recreational services. The big question about consumption is how long are U.S. households going to spend beyond their means. It's clear that the third quarter growth financed by either drawing down on savings or uh, from borrowing. And how long can that runway last? That's a very big question. And we think that that one runway is coming to an end very soon. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, the stock market has been going through a correction. We're down about 8% from the peak this summer. Will the correction continue or will Santa Claus finally arrive on the scene? Joining us from Oppenheimer is Ari Wald. Ari, let's begin from the top. We've had a corrective mode here that we've been since the peak that we saw this summer. What's your take in terms of where we're heading from here and what does it look like to you? Uh, it hasn't been pretty, Jim, and there's are some negatives we can point to, but I would lean with the idea that this is an opportunity 
the long-term investor and that the market is set up for a seasonal Q4 rally uh, into year end. Uh, the volatility VIX index is coming off a reading above 20 and has spiked meaningfully in recent weeks. RSI conditions are oversold. And we're going to be watching to see if this does set up the platform uh, for a move to the upside. I want to talk about two issues that have been weighing on the market and get your take on if you can see anything in the charts that would align with this. We've been on this, we're going to have a recession, we're not going to have a recession. Now it's been pushed, the recession has been pushed into next year. And also we've had a spike in bond yields with the 10-year treasury getting close to 5%, the 30-year going over 5%. What impact do those two reflect in the charts and what you're looking at? And that has been the major disconnect in the market, even dating back to last year. The economic signals and the stock market signals. The stock market was indicating that the potential risk of a recession was already discounted through last year's decline. And what we've seen this year is a repricing of the market. Uh, with the understanding that that risk uh, wasn't imminent. And it's important to note that investors should be looking at the stock market to predict the economy, not the economy to predict the stock market. In fact, the S&P 500 is included in one of the leading economic indicators. So I'll tell you, you know, whether or not... (laughs) there's heightened recession risk based on the stock market, not vice versa. And I still think even with this setback, I don't think it is signaling that recession risk is imminent, partially due to the action in interest rates. The market has been pressured more recently as we think about this 8% drawdown since late July through the rise in interest rates and the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield specifically that I'm looking at. But this is much different than the rise in interest rates in 2022. Uh, and, and this gets back to one of the, the key bullish points, I think, for the market. And I, and I get it. The evidence isn't overwhelmingly positive. You know, the market breadth, far from robust. However, we'd still argue that bullish positioning is paying off more than bearish bets. You know, specifically, long-duration equities are outperforming high-dividend-paying sectors you know, through the rise in interest rates, even specifically since the September 25th FOMC meeting and the higher for longer Fed mantra. And that's a big difference between now and early 2022. When rates were rising rapidly in early 2022, it was the other way around. It was a very risk-off rise. Defensive, counter-cyclical, high-dividend, bond-like sectors were outperforming and long-duration sectors like technology were underperformed. So again, that being a key difference, it's why are interest rates rising? It's, it's right. It's, it's the reason rates are rising. And in early 22, it was the risk of runaway inflation. Now they're rising was along with Fed policy. Growth is coming back to the market. And, and given the action in the equity market, it leads us to believe that this is the type of volatility that should be bought. Uh, and that recession risk is not yet on the table. You know, we, we tell investors, be careful what you wish for. It's going to be the point when rates actually start to break lower. That's going to be concerning for us. And that would suggest that recession risk is uh, more uh, imminent and sooner rather than later. Yeah, look at that within the S&P 500. It seems like three sectors stand out. 
One would be energy, the other technology and communications. Everything else looks like it's in a steep downturn. What's your take here? That is as far as what is working in terms of relative strength, as well as what what we're keen on, uh, the momentum factor. Those are a few of the sectors that rank best for us. I would argue industrials also uh, ranking more positively than not. And conversely, on the flip side, what's weighing on the market and and that ranks lowest for us is going to be utilities, consumer staples, REITs, and, and so forth. And so if, you know, for us, we're, we're looking to buy relative strength and sell relative weakness, you know, the areas that we're focusing on are the ones that you've named. I mean, starting first with technology, uh, the broadness of that relative strength, you know, shouldn't be understated. It's not just a handful of stocks. In fact, if you were to look at that sector on an equal weighted basis, uh, that sector also set up for what we see as a major relative breakout versus the market, that it is positioned to continue to outperform based on our read of the tape. And at the same time, if you were to strip out the strength in technology and and growth, broadly speaking, you know, we could show you ratios where that show that cyclical value is outperforming versus defensive value. And a big part of that cyclical value strength has been energy, uh, as as you mentioned. And I think that provides an attractive balance, technology and energy. I think they can work together. I think overweight positions in both sectors uh, makes a lot of sense for us. It's what we're recommending to our clients. You know, with that said, we don't think this is a new super cycle for the energy sector because we don't think the U.S. dollar is weak enough to support it. Uh, but at the very least, selectively, there are certain oil exploration and production stocks that are uh, positioned to break through big resistance levels dating back over a decade. And that warrants our attention and it warrants portfolio exposure from our vantage point as well. I want to go to another area for a second and talk about the cryptocurrencies. Hard to believe that Bitcoin was at 26000 uh, a little less than a month ago, and today it's close to 34000 What's going on with crypto? It's certainly a very volatile move. And it's for that reason, it's one that's very difficult to trade because in order to capture those, the big gains that we've seen in this over the last decade, you know, to capture a 100, 200, 300% gain, you have to be able to stomach, you know, 20, 30, 40, almost 50% corrections last time. And that's very difficult for some to do. But the beauty of charts, it keeps everything in perspective. And what I'm reading from the charts is that this recent move higher, it's been a very strong move to the point where its daily RSI has now reached above 80 for the first time since January of this year. And while that is typically viewed as an indication of being overbought, it's also viewed as an indication that price is still accelerating, which typically characterizes a trend that should continue rather than reverse. Typically at reversal points, you'll have new price highs, but momentum is already starting to tick lower and we don't have that. Uh, And January of 2023 provides a great example. The Bitcoin RSI moved above 80 and it, uh, led to a continuation of that trend. It wasn't a straight line. In fact, there was a pullback in March of this year. Uh, But those pullbacks, again, are the tactical opportunities. That's the read of the tape that we want to 
in, in anticipation for higher lows followed by higher highs, uh, traders should be looking to buy the pullbacks in Bitcoin as it continues to retrace uh, the heavy losses between 2021 and 2023. Let's go back to a comment you made in a recent newsletter is that uh, you said, so while key risk is that the laggards drag the leaders lower, we think that's more of a 2024 risk. And instead, market bifurcation could continue to widen with both winners and losers going forward. Explain. We see this bull market in the equity cycle. We think 2022 was a non-recessionary bear market. And so what that means is that we've had this up cycle in the equity market, but it's overlapped with a continuation of the economic cycle in a late economic cycle environment. You know, late cycle, not end of cycle, however. And, and this has happened before through history. 1987, great example of a crash in 87, non-recessionary bear market. Bull market in 88, 89 against a late cycle economy led to recession in 1990. Equities can move higher uh, even in a late economic cycle. What we found is that typically those cycles are a little bit shorter. The magnitude isn't as strong, and sometimes the performance isn't as, as as broadly strong either. And that's especially true when the yield curve is inverted as it as it currently is. Typically, you'll you'll really start to see the the winners and losers separate. The momentum factor, in particular, uh, typically uh, outperforms against that type of backdrop. And so, looking at those cycles, what if a bull cycle is typically about three years, maybe gains from bottom to top 70%. I think uh, our estimates would suggest to be much more conservative that perhaps a 15 to 18 month bull cycle that maybe rallies about 50% from bottom to top uh, would be more reasonable for the environment that we're in. And with that said, as we have now finished the, the one year anniversary of the cycle that started in October of 2022, uh, we still think, even based on those conservative estimates, that it can continue into 2024. But with that said, tough to make the case that you're, you're going to see small caps get into the mix, you know, now at the lower end of its range. And so uh, we do run the risk that, again, it's the cycle continues, but it remains a bifurcated cycle uh, with the winners having been established, uh, while the laggards have trouble playing catch up uh, against this backdrop. And finally, I want to touch upon gold and silver. Oil has been pulling back. What's your take on gold here? It has shot up quickly in recent weeks, partly due to the spike in the VIX. As the as volatility has erupted, you know, the safe haven status of gold has uh, has strengthened. And what you've seen in the yellow metal are these very wide swings in recent years, and it's been moving above and below its 200-day average. And that indicates uh, to us a price that is oscillating. It's rather trendless. And so as it nears the upper end of this range, we're unsure that there's going to be a breakout in the price of gold to the upside. And the reason is because we don't think the U.S. dollar is weak enough to support it. Historically, there's been an inverse relationship between the price of gold and the U.S. dollar. And the big rises in the price of gold 
in recent decades have typically occurred with a significantly weak U.S. dollar that we're not seeing right now. You know, as it stands, the U.S. dollar index is uh, moderated in recent weeks, and that has helped support uh, the jump in the price of gold, but it still remains above its 200-day average and long-term support levels. And so for that reason, uh, we don't think we're in a super cycle for commodities, broadly speaking, uh, and for for gold included. Uh, as it pushes to the upper end of the range, I, we think it remains just that, uh, a range-bound gold market. Is it surprised you, given the events in the Middle East, that gold has not been stronger as well as oil? Uh, well, I guess it has been. It has been, um, been strong, how, how, how I see it. Uh, I guess the gold, you know, through a lot of this uh, geopolitical uncertainty, the price of gold has rallied from eighteen hundred to uh, close to two thousand dollars over that time period. So it has proven to be a, a safe haven status since the eruption of this geopolitical events. Uh, as the VIX has moved to above twenty, and it has eased a little bit since then. Uh, as a near-term trade, yes, I mean historically, Historically, those types of geopolitical events uh, aren't typically uh, long-lasting. In fact, the saying is to you know uh, buy on the sound of uh, cannons and sell on the sound of trumpets. Trumpets that the wartime periods have historically been more rewarding for uh, riskier assets like equities. Uh, rather than safe haven ones, ones like gold. So I think it's all consistent. Again, just kind of near-term volatility, yes, uh, not a long-term trend uh, either. And so, it again, just more of a, a near-term trade rather than a long-term trend change. So given the fact that you see this bifurcation in the market, Ari, how would you play this going forward from, let's say, now to the end of the year and possibly 2024? I think you have to key on themes and sectors. And it's important to note that the S&P 500 represents one of our top themes. Now, we recommend U.S. over world, we recommend large over small, and growth over value. U.S. large cap growth. NASDAQ 100, even a better proxy for a benchmark that we think investors should be looking to get exposure uh, towards uh, going forward. And uh, where we see opportunity on this market pullback. That even thinking about uh, looking at the action in small caps, which has been you know a proxy for internal breadth and it's held back you know a stronger market, uh, we just haven't seen the outperformance on the upside outweigh the underperformance on the downside. And if you ask why that's happening, you know, to me it comes back to the exposure of technology. That the, the benchmarks with higher exposure to technology uh, are been the benchmarks that are relatively stronger. And that's a historically consistent with the market that I think we're in. If we're still in this tech-led secular bull market and technology has been the most offensive, offensive sector in the market through history as well, it has outperformed more than any other sector in a bull market environment it would make sense to us, you know, even with a cycle that is still intact for areas like the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100 uh, to outperform on the upside. So as we, again, are at a point now with the market down 8%, tactically attractive, VIX up, oversold conditions, uh, uh, summertime froth has largely reset. You know, we're recommending our clients to use this as an opportunity 
uh, to buy those types of benchmarks. U.S. large cap growth, NASDAQ 100 being a great example. And Aria, final question. Next year, it's an election year. Typically, election cycles have been positive for the market. Do you see that happening? Typically, that strength is front-loaded. That looking at the four-year equity cycle, and it gets discussed as much as it does because it has historically overlapped with what was a four-year equity cycle, where you would have major market lows every four years, almost always in a midterm year. And we followed it quite closely. We had the bear market midterm year as historically was quite common for decades at a time. You had a low point in the fourth quarter when you almost always had those low points in the fourth quarter of a midterm year. Uh, That was then followed by the best part of the election cycle, the pre-election year, uh, which then begins to taper into uh, into the election year. Uh, ahead of weakness in the post-election year. Uh, And it's not going to follow it that closely, but I think as we start to get into that election year, as the duration of this cycle begins to reach those points where it would make sense for us to be on the lookout for a market top, you know, assuming market breadth doesn't rebroaden at any point between now and then, we get a sudden resurgence into small cap stocks, which could add some life to this cycle, Um, we're going to be on the lookout for that potential recessionary drop uh, in 2024. We've seen them before. I don't think it necessarily means it's going to be a 2008. It's not going to be a 2000 either, that those are the outlier events. Uh, We can get through this, and we will get through this together, Uh, but something we we will be watching for as, as we push into the election year of 2024. All right. Well, listen, Ari, as we close here, if our listeners like to follow you, how can they do so? Well, they can reach out to their Oppenheimer sales representative, or they can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Ari Walden. All right. Ari, you have a great rest of the year. Happy holidays and the days ahead and come back again. Oh, I'm looking forward to it, Jim. You as well. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Today, we're going to discuss some of the most important developments happening in the market right now when it comes to the large amount of debt being issued by the Treasury, surging bond yields, and some of the ripple effects that are likely to come from this. Our guest to speak with us about this and more is Alex Barrow at Macro Ops, where he and his team produce high-signal investment research to help make you a calculating, ruthlessly efficient, and consistently profitable investor. It's actually fairly simple. The, the thing that's been driving markets primarily over the last few months is obviously the, the runaway train in, in bond yields. That's concerning for a number of reasons, and, and really to understand why we have to talk about the drivers. So when we're looking at the rise in yields, um, it's currently being driven by huge glutton supply. Um, we're in this new era of fiscal dominance, um, sort of running these large massively large deficits and where government is kind of enlarging its role within the the broader economy. I think the stat that I've read recently is that government spending as a percentage of GDP is risen close to 43% this year. Um, And just to give some perspective, it was roughly 27 to 30% back in 2000. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. 
Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsensewealth.com and hit where it says Contact Us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, this summer, we saw a rising stock market along with falling inflation. Here we are. It's fall. Oil prices hit $90 and could be going higher, and inflation is coming back. What does all this mean on the macro front going forward? Well, joining us on the program is Greg Weldon. He's CEO of Weldon Financial, a CTA, and he's publisher of Weldon Live in the Portfolio Playbook. Greg, before we begin, I want to go back. We had you on in June, and you were talking about the macro environment. I want to play a clip from that interview. Let's listen to that and then take up the discussion from there. Fed policy right now is somewhat restrictive. Now they say want to get more restrictive. Well, inflation will fall again and they'll be more restrictive. So the Fed is kind of restrictive into an economy where the majority of people, 33%, think they will be worse off a year from now, where only 24% of people say they'll be better off a year from now. Against the stock market, where, yeah, the, the index, the S&P 500 has broken out through the first level of uh, overhead support. It's held some of the technical levels it needed to hold. There is some evidence that you have kind of a last gas bull market that could actually take you to new highs here, technically speaking. But this is about as narrow a market as I've ever seen. You have 30% of the S&P 500 stocks are trending bullishly. 20% are trending bearishly. That's 10% margin, all right? And the bulk of the bullish stocks, as we know, are in information technology. Our models that we use in our ETF playbook, which we publish and is a great product to help investors kind of keep ahead and keep pace with the debasement of the purchasing power of their money, which is really the biggest backdrop that's going on. Within the stock market, you know, keeping in the places that are have bullish backdrop in terms of the trends, in terms of the fundamentals, in terms of the technicals, that's the places to be. It's been infotech. It will remain in Fotech until this market probably gets a reality check on the economic side sometime in the fall. If you ask me, Jim, the only thing that's missing from kind of a 1987 analog is that people were way more wildly bullish in 1987. But you have a lot of the same things at play. You have a lot of the same kind of tracking here that suggests you get a wake up call, you know, through end of August. And the fall is a whole nother story economically. Is potentially a whole nother story with inflation maybe coming back. And it's a whole nother story in terms of the stock market, you know, having its reality check. Let's pick up from that, Greg, because that's what we were seeing the first part of the year. The inflation level was coming down. Bond yields were coming down. I just think of all the people that jumped into bond funds this year. They're getting killed right now. Inflation is coming back. Oil prices are higher and the stock market is struggling. So pick it up from there. Yeah. Well, the call there was honestly, it wasn't that difficult. Frankly, I'd love to give myself a lot more credit, but you could see the base effect kicking in on inflation. You knew that inflation was going to come down because energy was going to be a lot lower than it was a year ago. So simple mathematics dictated that you were going to see a decline in inflation. We said you'd get to four with the chance to get a three handle. That was the exact quote. And you got to three. I mean, you got all the way down to three. The issue now is, all right, and there's two things to talk about. Number one, 
where we are now with inflation and number two, where the Fed is. Number one, in terms of inflation, you have come down. A lot of food products, particularly in pork and several other things that have been high flyers, have come way off. That's one reason Chinese inflation is so low because their component of food is so heavily weighted in their CPI index. But in that context, a lot of those food items have bottomed. You have some fundamental supply demand dynamics that are bullish in several commodities, particularly in the food, the tropical softs. We see that in sugar, cocoa, a whole variety of commodities. And in that dynamic, you probably have the base effect in energy is over. The decline in energy is over. The decline in food is probably over. And you have a base effect that's going to boost energy prices if they go up at all from where they are. Given the geopolitical risk, which I think is being understated dramatically in the markets right now, I think there's a good chance that happens. That's number one. Number two is kind of, well, we also thought the timing of all this would put us into the fall because of the bond market, but more so in the context of how the bond market responds to the Fed. Because if you go back to June, the Fed was barely neutral with policy because they were trailing inflation so much. They were lagging by such a timeline to when inflation started to rise that they were behind the curve on inflation until May. May, they finally got the rate into May and June. They finally got the Fed funds rate enough above inflation because inflation is coming down and they're still hiking to where you could say they're finally neutral and then restrictive. I could make a case that the Fed has only been restrictive for five months so far. So everyone is saying, well, the economy hasn't rolled over, so maybe things aren't so bad. It's like, it's only five months of restrictive policy. You will see the economy start to choke now to the next six, seven months from now. And that was the economic reality check that we talked about that you're now seeing as banks have to talk about writing off more you know, reserves for loan losses against credit card, delinquencies are rising, all the dynamics we talked about, all the savings have been spent, wage gains on a real basis are still zero. And the degree to which you know the only thing that's kind of held up has been the wealth effect in stocks, that's kind of the next leg. And I even said in that same interview that I think the Fed will keep the hawkish rhetoric up because they also want some disinflation in the stock market. They keep talking about pain. That's one place we haven't seen it yet. And then not only that, but you kind of go back to this dynamic around where the Fed funds futures were back in June. They were pricing in at one point a 3% Fed funds by the end of next year, that the Fed was going to cut 200 to 250 basis points starting by the end of this year. And I said, the Fed's going to keep up with the hawkish rhetoric until they eradicate that expectation because the last thing they want to do is turn when everyone expects them to cut rates dramatically next year and the stock market's at near record highs. And that is the way it's played out. From here, it gets a lot more sketchy, a lot more dangerous. And frankly, I see a lot of ominous things just in the last week in terms of the health internally of this stock market. I want to talk about something. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal today talking about investments, the old 60-40 playbook. I mean, you got killed last year, if you followed that. And this year, Greg, we saw a lot of hedge funds, a lot of investors move into the bond market because everybody's, oh, recession, the Fed's going to raise interest rates. We'll be in a recession. They'll end up cutting just as you just talked about. So they jumped in and I'm just looking at TLT, the treasury. That thing has lost almost 22% since hitting a high in April. So once again, we have the same dynamics playing out, falling bond prices, rising interest rates. And I want to get your attention and get your thoughts here on the elephant in the room that I see very few people talking about. And I'm talking about the government's budget deficit. We took, I think it was 92 days to go from 32 trillion to 33 trillion. We reached 33 trillion on September 19th. Fast forward one month later, Greg, and I'm just talking four weeks, we added another 700 billion in debt just four weeks. Nobody's talking about this. No, I mean, I'll tell you what, I have seen 
a somewhat of an increase in people talking about this just in the last month or so. So you're right, but also this is starting to get recognized. And the reason it's getting recognized is because people are kind of scratching their heads and saying, well, gee, if you know the Fed's done hiking, why are bond yields making new highs? I would say specifically for two reasons. Number one is the debt. Let's talk about that in a second. Number two is to kind of complete what I was just saying in the last question. The Fed is restrictive now because inflation at 3.7 versus Fed funds at 5.5, that's 180 basis points of real yield. Our star tells us 50 basis points is neutral. Therefore, somewhere from 150 to 300 basis points above the inflation inflation rate for the policy rate would be considered restrictive. What if the base effect and some action in food, and we know shelter is a long-term inflation dynamic that's going to be sticky. What if inflation rises to five and a quarter, Jim, or five, five? It completely wipes out the Fed's restrictive policy on a real rate basis. That's where this talk about 7% materialized all of a sudden. And uh, Jamie Dimon wasn't the first one to be talking about that. I was talking about that a month before because some of the base effects suggest you could get above five with the next couple of months of CPI going out through, say, February, let alone natural gain gas, which is something we haven't even talked about yet either. So that's one thing. The other thing then, as that relates to the budget is, okay, we'll say they got to go to seven. And you know, I'm not sure they would even if they were kind of, if, if that scenario played out, I think other factors would usurp that move. But let's for fun, say that's the case. Within the budget numbers, Jim, two things. Number one, of course, the interest cost. Okay. When you talk about how much debt has just been added, again, it's kind of like the consumer borrowing the most money ever at the highest rates we've seen in decades. That's what the government's doing, essentially. And the degree to which gross interest payments in this fiscal year that just ended, end of September, numbers just came out within a week, the last week, gross interest payments are $909 billion for the year. It's on par with stuff like Social Security and Medicare in terms of the percentage of this. I'll also point out spending as a percentage of GDP within the most recent fiscal year, 24.4%. There's only seven years that it's been above 24%, okay? One of those was in 2009, okay? Two of those were the last two years, and the other three were World War II. So the only two times we've ever had three years in a row where spending was above 24% of GDP were the last three years and in World War II, all right? And then let's talk about public borrowing. Borrowing from the public. Let's go back, because I have the numbers actually just was writing these down for the live report we just did, and of course, any of your listeners can get that for if they email us. But for the public borrowing, September... billion, August 328 billion, July 163 billion, June 823.3 billion. June was the second highest monthly public borrowing we've ever seen. The last four months is 1.7 trillion in public borrowing. That equals the entire year's deficit. We just borrowed it from the public in four months, let alone I mean, this again, we're borrowing from ourselves. We have to pay ourselves back. They print money and we buy it first. It's kind of crazy when you start to think about it. But these numbers, Jim, are totally unsustainable. And this is part of the problem for the Fed going forward. Because what if, you know, you cut interest rates, but people are unwilling or unable to continue to borrow more and more money, enough so to get growth to a level that we can support the debt? Because that's the big disconnect here. It's great if you have growth. But you need perpetual strong growth or you'll have a debt kind of, it's it's like, you know, science enough, Jim, where you know that when you enter a black hole, you cross the event horizon. And once you're in the black hole, you don't know you're in the black hole, but you ain't escaping the black hole. And that's kind of where we're at now with this debt situation, particularly in 
federal government, but it applies to companies, it applies to consumers. It's a 50-year credit bubble that is beginning to disinflate. I want to talk about the issue where you have so much, you know, typically we've seen spending, uh, huge amounts of spending go back to that 2007-2008 period. We were in a steep recession. So when you go into a recession, the playbook, Fed cuts interest rates, government implements a spending program. Greg, we've been spending like drunken sailors in a growth environment. What do we do if we actually go to a recession? What are they going to do? Because my contention is one reason the economy has been as strong or has remained positive as it has, it's the seven and a half trillion of new spending by the Biden administration. I mean, that has kept float. I mean, think of all those checks we sent out during COVID. No doubt. And let's throw in the fact that they depleted our strategic petroleum reserves by 45% just to keep oil below 80. And where is it now? Above 80. So you just wasted half of our reserves. So now we're in a deficit day to day. So that's another one you'd lop on top of that. This is the problem, Jim. I mean, you know it, I know it. It's a mathematical conundrum. And I've been saying this for a while. If you look, Powell brought, Powell has told us everything he's going to do, and then he went and did it. I mean, he's the most transparent and honest Fed governor I've ever seen. All right, Fed president I've ever seen, Fed chair. But at the same time, maybe some lack of transparency wouldn't be the worst thing right now for the Fed. When you go back to 2018, he's pretty much scripted this whole thing. We're going to let inflation rise to a level above average. We want to use the eight-year average. We're going to let, we're going to have no tolerance bans, meaning if it gets to five, we don't care. We're going to let it go as high as it wants. And we're going to let it stay there for a while. That's exactly what they did. And he said, we can deal with that because we have the Volcker playbook, which is what he's done. When you look at speeches, and I did a piece on this much earlier in the year, it might've even been the last end of last year, that compared the comments Powell's been making to speeches, particularly the first Humphrey Hawkins testimony in 1978 by then chairman Paul Volcker. The, dude, the verbiage and the syntax and the words are the same, man. It's the same thing. This is his hero. Powell's told us. Paul Volcker's my guy, right? He's, he's a Paul Volcker disciple. The problem is the one thing that Paul Volcker said that Jerome Powell said the opposite was very simple. He said, Paul Volcker said, I want to do all these things. I want to restrict the economy. We need to bring it down. We need to wrestle in inflation. What I don't want to do is cause a credit contraction. Powell has said quite the opposite. We need a credit contraction, which of course we do. But the problem is trying to let air out of the bloom with just a little needle prick and thinking you can plug that hole back up again. You can't do it. All right. So the problem here is you're going to bring the economy down and think you apply the old school things, but it doesn't work because the credit is so saturated and the inability or unwillingness of the government, of banks and of people to continue to borrow enough money to keep this debt floating seems like a almost, almost an impossible task. Having said that, you know, it's tough to fight the Fed because the Fed could go out there and buy every treasury bond ever printed. And so what if it costs $100 for a loaf of bread? That's kind of, you know, the alternative to all this. And I think it's more of both polarized. You get more inflation with, you know, in prices, which leads to deflation in uh, asset prices and basically the economy and the standard of living. So when you look at all this, Greg, I want to bring up what governments have always done throughout history. When they get in these kind of situations, they inflate their way out of it. And I just think we're getting to the point with it's not just the deficits that are growing, it's also the refinancing. I think it was $5 trillion of debt that's rolling over this year. So we're going from low interest rates to five plus. We got another $5 trillion that's rolling over next year. So this $900 billion you talk about in interest expense, God knows, it could be a, a trillion and a half next year. Our defense budget just went to $834 billion. You've got another $3 trillion in Social Security and Medicare. There's no way they can even get the tax revenues to pay for this. So the only option out of this, in my 
my opinion, is the Fed's going to have to monetize part of this because where are they going to get the funding? And that's the argument for things like gold and Bitcoin, because you know that's what they're going to do. I mean, I've said it, I wrote it in my book in 2006, when staring into the abyss, a deflation, a debt deflation abyss, central bankers will choose to reflate every single time, no matter what the cost. So it is. And this is why it's a 40 to 50 year trend change, Jim. You know, we've had this period from Paul Volcker in 82 when rates peaked. And gosh, you had, I think the official interest rate was like 16. And there were some bond yields that were above 20. I mean, think about that, all right? I just remember because my father was so proud of himself. He locked in like a five-year money market at 16%. And I remember five years later how bummed out he was that he couldn't even get close to that, right? But the point being, you've had a 40-year downtrend, lower lows and lower highs in interest rates, lower lows and lower highs in inflation. You have continually printed money every time you get a hiccup. And the only thing you really have to say to hit that point uh, home with people is this. Outside of three weeks during the pandemic, when it was at its worst, when the economy was completely shut down, outside of those three weeks, the week in March where AVB, when you know, they had a little mini banking crisis, they printed the most money ever in a single week, ever. You get a little hiccup and they run the printing presses like crazy because that's what they do and that's what they'll continue to do. And think about that on a global scale, Jim, because we often are US centric. We don't think about this is a global issue with inflation around the world. This is a global issue with monetary monetary policies in places like just they just did a report this week already on Indonesia and, and Singapore. And you have Indonesia who just raised rates this week to 6% from 575. Their inflation just dropped from 8 to 2. They're restrictive, they're punitively restrictive with policy because they're trying to keep the currency from collapsing when exports are posting double-digit declines six months in a row. That's insane. It really is. The whole kind of, I mean, just look around. And we're not even talking about the real elephants in the room. Number one, China. And number two, the Middle East. And this, we're waiting to be a you know, a shoop show, if you will. You know, it's just, I don't see how this thing doesn't just explode. I just don't. You have uh, military leaders on the opposite side of Israel meeting in Lebanon. I mean, this is, it's like Iran is trying to draw the U.S. into a war. It's just that simple to me. And China pulls the puppet strings. China linked Iran with Saudi Arabia, visited both. Has Iran, you know, shipping them oil now? They've linked up with Russia for food. That's why the Ukraine's been invaded. They have a new axis of power, Russia, China, and OPEC. And they are anti-American. And these people want to wipe out Israel. And this is, they're going to draw us in, this is going to be really bad, man. I just don't see how this doesn't end poorly. So let's talk about some of the consequences. When we saw the inflationary period that we went through during the 70s, late 60s, 70s, when basically we divested gold from backing of the dollar, we see another inflationary cycle developing. Let's talk about the role of commodities. And in particular, Greg, explain to our audience, because gold, I think, got down to about 1180, somewhere around there in 2018. Then they went from 11 80, all the way over 2000. Silver went from, I think, 12 to 28. And people are saying like in the last year where gold has sort of been consolidating, I'm surprised it's been as high as it is with the dollar. But oh, why do I own gold? Why do I own gold? Explain what can happen and how quickly this can turn. Well, one of the things that I've said is kind of when you get to this point, when the move takes place, it'll be so fast, you don't want to miss it. You know, I mean, even a matter of six to eight to 12 hours could be make all the difference in the world. So to me, it's something you want to kind of have just as part of 
what you have, number one. And number two, and at certain points, be leveraged to it. I mean, you know, I'm a CTA, so this is what we do for people. You know, I think the best way to take advantage and the safest way, frankly, to take advantage if you're not like a physical, you know, bar or, uh, you know, coin holder, so to speak. I'm not a newsmatic guy, but you know what I mean. Relative to the futures market, when you're in and out, 24 hours, I mean, you know, you can always have a banking crisis. Not everything's safe anymore. But I think the futures markets with the liquidity is one of the safest things out there. You can be in and out. You can have your money back in 48 hours or less. Uh, so I think that that is the best way to go about doing it. Of course, you know, you need to know the math around the futures markets. And that's one of the things we do here as a CTA in terms of people don't understand they're undercapitalized. Most people that deal with the futures markets, you buy one contract of gold, you're buying $200,000 worth of gold, not the 10 grand you got to put up in margin. So if you can do all that, that's the best way to go about doing it. And the reason I say this is because you will have an epiphany, like kind of a, a moment of epiphany, the light bulb over your head, the next time the Fed prints money. And I think they've been kind of stepping on gold. You see how many tailed weekly reversals there are from above 2000? I mean, it's pretty obvious to me. And it's not too dissimilar, frankly, from when there was big Chinese buying after the 2011 high and gold came all the way down to 1049. And it was a perfect 50% retracement going all the way back to 1971. And there was days, I remember watching this day in and day out, upside tail reversal, upside tail reversal from below the 50% retracement. We find out a couple months later, Chinese, huge buying by the Chinese during that time frame. right? So somebody's holding gold down here, I think, but they can't do it forever. And when I've said this before, and I'll say it again, because the best analogy is like holding a beach ball under the water in the pool. When you let it go, it explodes upwards. That's what's going to happen in gold eventually. And so, and I agree with what you said before, and I've we've had this conversation ourselves that people are kind of upset with gold. They're disappointed in gold. They're bummed with gold. Look at the open interest. I mean, like, like as low as it's been in years or have been in the recent decline down to 1800 again. But in that context, it has held up extremely well given the if you look at the dollar divided by gold, it is not kept up with the dollar index. In fact, it's breaking down. So that is amazing. Gold has actually held its own in the face of one of the strongest dollar periods we've seen in a long time. So to me, that's very reassuring because ultimately the dollar will be the way to circumvent some of the things you just mentioned that we've always talked about. What if the Fed cuts rates, but you know that's not as effective as it was in the past? What if you have more difficulty? You, know, you go in there and do a three trillion fiscal deal next time? I mean, $7 trillion, $10 trillion? I mean, we just did $8 trillion. That was, you know, the 2008, 2009, we did four, then we did eight. What are we going to do, 16 next time? I don't know that the political will and stomach is there for something like that. And certainly, there's going to be all kinds of resistance. So, Again, the dollar is the easiest way, ultimately, and this kind of gets into what we see going on in emerging markets right now, where you have a currency crisis going on right now in a lot of countries. So that's another thing where I think we're so egocentric you know, and then focused on the US that we're missing the fact that there is a real emerging market currency crisis already underway. Yeah, the thing that really surprises me, I was looking at the statistics on the ETS for GLD and SLV. So the public has been selling gold in the gold ETFs. I think it's like 600 tons. But what has held gold up and why it's done so well, the biggest buyers, at least that I've seen, Greg, in probably decades has been central banks. And you know, I'm betting with the central banks, not what individual investors are doing. Because you're talking about, I think, what was it? Close to 1,300 tons last year almost a record buying by central banks. They see what's coming. Yeah, because they see their own currencies. They see gold making new highs in all these currencies. Think about a currency, you know, let's take Turkey or Pakistan. You know, people don't want to talk about those countries. They seem like emerging. They don't seem really industrialized or economic at all. You're talking about, you know, the tens and hundreds between the two of them, when you combine them, of millions of people live there. 
All right. So you take the case of Turkey, where, you know, the currency is down tenfold in just a couple of years. And the price of gold, you know, is up like, you know, it's ridiculous amount of debasement of the purchasing power of these currencies. And these places where gold is setting record highs, like at huge, enormous gains over the last three, five, 10 years. I mean, just multiples right? 800 times, a thousand times. In other words, you know, it's eight times higher or something. That's purchasing power debasement of those currencies. And you take a case like I, I might have mentioned this to you once before, Turkey, who raised their monthly minimum wage not too long ago, right? And this is a level that in, in you know, 10 years ago, in lira terms, would have been $11,000, all right, as a minimum monthly wage. So you're making 140 grand a year, all right? That same amount of lira now is worth 470 bucks a month instead of $11,000 a month. So think about someone in Turkey that's living on 140 grand a month equivalent, and then 10 years later, they're living on, you know, $4,800 a year as their income. That's a real hardcore picture of the debasement of the purchasing power of money. You see it in the US all over the place. Just go to the grocery store. I mean, that's another way. Not only are they cutting the size of everything, all right? You buy, I buy the frozen pizza box. The box is still the same size, but the pizza's moving all over the place because it's down by, you know, 20% and they jack the price by 10. That's a 30% inflation rate right there. Well, as I look at this, Greg, you know, I'm thinking of commodities. In the 00 decade, it was driven by the strong industrialization of China and a lot of the BRIC countries. I look at it different now. It's almost going to be be driven not only just by this transition to green energy, which requires more raw materials, but it's going to be a supply issue. I mean, you just take a look at what's happened in the last month. Exxon buying uh, Pioneer. You have Chevron buying Hess. So the oil companies are drilling for oil on Wall Street because they're not finding the reserves that they need to replace those that they produce. So I see a bull market in commodities, probably like we haven't seen in a long, long time. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I think you have to be really selective right here because like you just said, very accurately stating that it's not like an industrial push here. And before I get to that, just to back up, because something else you said was really interesting about China, all right? China's been an engine of growth for 10 years. That engine of growth is gone, all right? Whether it's on purpose, like during his COVID shutdown or some of the more recent things, they refuse to cut interest rates. And I mean, come on, did we not see the game China's playing here? They don't care about the economy. They care about hurting ours, okay? But when you go back to commodities, it is a supply side dynamic and it's in many commodities and a lot of them are food. And this is where it really gets me concerned. We know the energy story, Jim. I mean, no Nobody wants to be short crude oil here. Nobody in their right mind would be short crude. It has a floor. Even if it dips, it's viable because I just feel like it's almost a certainty and that probably should be something I should be listening to from a counter trend and a counterintuitive perspective. But, you know, I think the upside, you know, unless they open the spigots, you're talking about Saudi Arabia and Russia. They're not going to do it because that would help us too much. And right now, this is war, man. It's a resource war that's morphing into something more. And in the context of some of the food commodities, supply demand fundamentals that are pretty bullish. And more than that, you widen the scope of the commodities you cover in a potentially bullish vein when you define them by the margin of error in supply, where if there's any supply disruption, things could explode in a lot of these commodities. Sugar is a great example. The stocks to usage ratio, they just cut again. They just cut ending stocks by 21% from a month ago. I mean, think about some of these things and down 20% from a year ago. Cotton, if Brazil just did a total audit of all their cotton stocks, they found out 
hey, we own 10% less cotton than we thought we had in storage. So here all of a sudden there's another one. There's a lot of these commodities where the margins of error are so thin that any supply side thing is going to be explosive. And the flip side of that is the industrial argument that you just made. When you're looking at rising inventories of copper and aluminum and nickel and nickel's at a new price low and copper's broken down. So it is something you need to be selective about in the commodities right now. Ultimately, of course, dollar devaluation and what comes next with money printing will drive them all higher. And you know, some of these metals still could be in very short supply in the future. It's kind of a short-term stuff with some of the batteries and note like stuff like solar and wind, like the tan and the fan ETFs, they've gotten smoked, man. They're breaking down big time. So, you know, again, selectively bullish on commodities. And I think that frankly, Jim, the things that you and I do as CTAs and as money managers is have access to some of these things that not everyone has access to or is adept at trading or understands the math behind it. This is what we do. We provide a great service now that's going to go into higher demand because people are going to have to find different ways to keep pace with the devaluation of their money and wealth. And that's going to become increasingly more difficult going forward. Yeah. And just ending on the oil note that just came out today, global fossil fuel demand is set to hit record highs in 2024 with consumption increasing almost So, Greg, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow the work that you guys do, tell them how you can do. Well, sure. I think if I understand it correctly, you'll find people that do a great job uh, supporting you in the background. We've agreed to give a Poplava discount to our research, which is a deep discount. Like this is one of our lowest prices ever. But I feel it's really important for me. It's almost like a mission statement these days to try and help people kind of become their own CTA, become their own hedge fund, do the things they're going to have to do to try and keep pace. I think, you know, the buy and hold in stocks is dead. I think the near term for stocks is going to be difficult. So we're offering the portfolio playbook, which gives specific portfolios, breaks down in several different types of portfolios, covers the S&P 500 specifically and all the sectors and all the individual shares. So we rank them based on the bullish and bearish trends. It's a really cool product. And then of course, the Weldon Live, which has been around forever also with specific portfolio recommendations in stock indexes, bonds, currencies, and the entire range of commodities. So we're giving a special price that can be linked into one of your websites. So maybe you can you know give more information about that to your people. My email is sales at weldonline.com. And of course, we do manage money for credit investors as a series three registered CTA. And we are accepting new money right now. But I tell you what, Jim, you know, this has been a sideways year after two really, really big years in 20 and 21, 20 and 22, 21 was good, but you know, 20 was spectacular. 22 was really good too. We've had a sideways year. It was like, oh, you're up and then you're down and you're up and you're down. I mean, look at the sideways markets, look at gold, look at like a 200 day moving average of gold, like um, two months ago, it was completely flat. But right now we see this crystallizing, especially with what we see in the stock market because the breadth in the stock market is decidedly negative now, way more than it was positive when it was rallying. So love to have any of your people come in and you know join our client list. And you know we call it research that pays for itself because it is, because this is not a cost. It's an investment that produces big dividends. It has every year for the decades I've been doing it. So it's weldenonline.com is the website. Uh, you can follow me at Twitter uh, at Weldon Live. Uh, we're also doing a one minute free daily video. It's called In a Macro Market Minute, which is just thoughts of the day. It's on YouTube. My user is Gregory Weldon. So you can go check that out as well. It'll give you a little more flavor for the research. But I think that it's a real good value that we're offering your people here to help them to try and navigate these markets, which can become increasingly treacherous. All right. Well, listen, Greg, as always, it's a pleasure having you on the program. If I don't talk to you before a year in, happy holidays and stay safe. 
That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888 that's 486 3939 or you can also visit us on our website financialsensewealth.com. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense News Hour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk